You're listening to Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Bob Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. My name is Dr. Bob Hieronymus, and uh, I'm a lowly Ph.D., and my executive producer is Laura Courtney. Our engineer is Noah Dankner. Here with us tonight is the author of The League of Outsider Baseball, an illustrated history of Baseball's Forgotten Heroes, published by Simon & Schuster's Touchstone Books. Now, here's my shortest review. My longest review is a little bit too long to read. I said, a classic and unique summer adventure whose main reason for existence is fun. This is baseball's storytelling at its finest, with unheard tales about the Negro Leagues, semi-pro-town teams, foreign, and low minors. The author, artist, historian's one-of-a-kind original poses portray the obscure and legendary, and his master of color, line, and technique, but best of all, his sense of humor spoke the language of the love of the game, a feast for the eyes, the mind, and the heart. That's called balance. Now this is a book that feels, looks, and smells like a day at the park of outsider baseball, a true labor of love dedicated to his mentor and dad. If I could have given it six stars, I woulda. Now, you might think that because I've admired Gary J.C. Radkowski for decades that I have over-exaggerated on the plus side. But, did you know that of the first five reviews that I've seen posted on Amazon.com, all were five-star reviews. So, well, and in this field of study, that's nearly unheard of. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio, Brother Gary. Uh, thanks for having me back, Dr. Bob. That was a heck of, a, heck of an introduction. <laughs> well, we had to lay the foundation of the history here, because you're an historian. You know that's, that's important. Need I say congratulations on this magnum opus? Need I say that? Uh, it's nice to hear. Okay. <laughs> I bet you it is. I understand it's really selling well, and uh, it's just magnificent. But I'm going to stop using all of these superlatives all the time, because let's get to the point here. What made you write this historic and artistic document? Well, it goes back to when I was a kid. And I I grew up in northern New Jersey, and I was a New York Mets fan. And this was back during the late 1970s, early 80s, and the the Mets just had terrible teams year after year after year. And... uh, you know, I learned uh, the game of baseball from my father, who had learned it from his father. And uh, so I would talk about baseball when I was a kid with my dad, and you can only talk about the Mets for so long before you start getting angry about how bad the team was. So my dad and his father, my grandfather, would start telling me about baseball history, about the players that they saw when they were growing up. Now, my grandfather was a Brooklyn Dodger fan going all the way back to the 1920s, so he would tell me about Dazzy Vance and Joe Medwick, you know, and Pete Beezer and all these players. My dad grew up in the 50s, you know, so he would tell me about Warren Spahn and Hank Aaron and Willie Mays and all those other great players. So I, I really uh, learned a love of baseball history from my father and my grandfather, and that's, that's where this book originally comes from. Well, I left New Jersey and I went to college in Baltimore, which is, which is where I met you years ago, and... Um, and then I moved all around the country and never never moved back to New Jersey. But my father and I stayed close, very, very close, and we would speak on the phone three to five times a week. 
and we talked about baseball history. And as we got older, it started turning to more of the more interesting characters, the people that you never really heard of. And uh, I, I developed an interest in the Negro Leagues when I was really young, so I would tell my dad about those players, and then he would come back at me with, you know, guys that only played two games in the major leagues and try to, you know, trick me on that, or, or you know, guys that play for weird minor league teams in Kansas or something in 1910. And we just come up with all these great stories, and, and I, I just I, I loved following the game that way, and it was, this was this great relationship I had with my father. And then in... Uh, Right before the 2009 World Series, my father passed away uh, from a brain aneurysm. It was very quick and unexpected. And I was living out in Hollywood at the time, and none of my friends liked baseball. And I didn't have anybody to talk about baseball or baseball history with since when my father passed away. And uh, a few months after he passed away, I, I was lonely one night, and I started a, uh, I just started a blog on the internet, just like a standard little blog. And I drew a little baseball card who coincidentally was Leon Day, our friend. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I wrote a little story of Leon Day's career and posted it. And then the next day I did another one and posted it. It was just a very quick, simple drawing and a simple story. But after a month or so, people started writing me letters, you know, and emails, and saying, this is something I've been waiting for. These little stories are, are, are unique, and the drawings are so fun. And... This, this thing that started from a sadness about my father passing away and, and uh, a loneliness because I didn't have anybody to talk about baseball with, all of a sudden I started getting all these people, all these, I guess you could call them friends, you know, these, these acquaintances that I, that I got coming from this little website. So in a way I was able to kind of get back what I had with my father with all these strangers. And mm -hmm. it just started going on and on and it, it uh, that was about five and a half years ago, and it culminated in the, the book that you're holding your hand right now. Well, it's taking you decades to birth this baseball baby, I'll call it, and and its ideas and process grew over years, over well, you know, with various projects. Would you fill us in on on a, a little bit about that that part of your life history? Well, I, I'm a graphic designer and illustrator, and uh, where'd you go to school? Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore. Micah. Yep. Yeah. And Good class school. of uh, 1992. And uh, uh, I, my first job, actually, when I was still in college, my, my first design job was with David Ashton Company, and it was I, I got very lucky because uh, uh, being a lifelong baseball fan, I had a lot of baseball things in my portfolio. And when I took it around uh, when I was in school, it just so happens that, I brought it into the right place at the right time, and David Ashton and company had just gotten the contract to do Oriole Park at Camden Yards. So right off the bat, from my first job as a graphic design professional, I was able to incorporate and combine my, my love of art with my love of baseball. And uh, it, you know, it was one of those jobs. I was uh, 21 at the time, and it was one of those things that made, me, made the rest of my career. Mm. And, uh, so you know, throughout the years, I've done package design and environmental graphics and uh, branding and, you know, pretty much anything, anything you can design. I've, done, I've at least tried it. <laughs> but you did produce some other booklets that led up to this, the 21. Oh, and the, yes. I mean, you know, they were marvelous things. Wow. Yeah, I, I just, you know, and then, and then uh, when I started the baseball blog five, five and a half years ago, there were little things that I, that I started doing. Um, I, I did a, 
uh, a, a little booklet called 21, and it was uh, it was all about Jewish ball players, and because that that was uh, uh, when I would get people giving me requests online, it, a lot of people were always asking for Jewish ball players, and I started I started researching that, and there's so many great characters, so I, I did a I did a book full of those guys, and then I um, I combined with another baseball historian by the name of Gary Ash, Ashwell, and the nephew of an, a Hall of Fame Negro League player from the turn of the century called Pete Hill. And the three of us combined, and we did a 15-card card set of Pete Hill's life, illustrating his, his whole entire career. And, um, uh, and then uh, Gary Ashwell, the, the baseball historian, had researched all his statistics, and it's, it's just a really neat little card set. So, yeah, and then, um, and then the book just kind of was the – I guess the natural thing to do after that, a full-scale book. Well, it's about time for us to get inside your gorgeously colored volume and find your fine. I, I love this table of content. Everything about this, its entire layout is just wonderful. And, and uh, you know, it consumes anyone who loves this game. It will consume them. You know, look what you did. On your table of contents, you had this beautiful, deep green background with these gorgeous pennants, this colorful pennants with the chapters' names in it. Now, you got about, oh, about nine chapters, if you count the introduction and things like that. But tell us the, the chapter headings for each topic so that we can start talking about these guys. Sure. Well, the first one is called the Bush Leaguers, and that's uh, a chapter um, that has all guys that you have heard of before. Um, while most of the book has a lot of characters you never heard of before, the first chapter I started off with guys like Sandy Koufax, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, um, Roberto Clemente. But I tell a story from before they went to the major leagues. What did, what did those guys do when they were in the minor leagues, or even before that? You know, what was their? Mm-hmm. How did they get started out on their career? So that that's always fascinating to me. What did what did Babe Ruth do? He, you know, he was with the Baltimore Orioles. You know what. What was that that year that he was with the Orioles like? You know, so I tell that story. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll get we'll get to those pe- people later on. What what's chapter two? That's the could have been, and uh, uh, you know, as the title suggests, it's those guys that just really could have done something or had huge expectations going into the major leagues, and something just happened along the way to sidetrack them. Oh, there's some great ones in there. I can't wait to get to them. The chapter three was the international game. What an unusual chapter yeah I, I really enjoyed doing that one because you know whereas there's a lot of american players you never heard of there's even more foreign players you never heard of with even more, more wonderful stories yeah yeah we're going to touch on them chapter four is bad guys boy we had some real bad guys oh you got to have those guys in yeah there. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, the next one is the people's game and that one i like too because it I, I tried to have people in there that you would know for something else but they also played baseball. Like I have Frank Sinatra in there, <laughs> George Bush. So it's, it's it's people like that. Yeah, Jack Kerouac. Wow. Yep. Yeah. And uh, chapter six is the race game. Right. And um, instead of, you know, the title would suggest it's just Negro League players, but I, I tried not to do that. I, I didn't want to have a separate chapter with mm-hmm. the black players in it because they were segregated for so long. So I kind of peppered those guys throughout all the rest of the chapters. There's, there's a few in that in that that the chapter race game, but I also talk about how Asian players were discriminated against yeah. and uh, um, and and things like that. 
they they were discriminated against and also discriminated against others. Yep. Yeah, which I no, I learned so much from you. This was so much fun to learn this stuff. I thought I knew something, but boy, I turned into a minor leaguer here on this. Now the last chapter is the oddballs. Yeah, I could have made that twenty times bigger than it was because baseball is just one of those sports that just attracts the most oddest players or oddest characters in life and it just seems like they at one time or another they all played baseball yeah they sure did well it's time out here on the playing field with gary c radkowski the league of outsider baseball an illustrated history of baseball's forgotten heroes touchstone 2015 that's a simon and schuster publication you can order it from the 21st century radio.com or from gary's website infinite card set dot blogspot dot com or from all major bookstores well our guest of course is gary c radkowski the league of outsider baseball an illustrated history of baseball's forgotten heroes touchstone books 2015 uh gary you note that your book portrays these forgotten players as they should be with the same kind of care and respect as would be fit ted williams or babe ruth what does that mean and why is that important? Well, because, uh, you know, there's thousands of pictures of, of Babe Ruth and, and, and Ted Williams, but there isn't many pictures of, say, Oliver Marcel or, or um, you know, or, or, or the Black Sox when they were, after they got banned from the major leagues. So I wanted to, when I did my illustrations, I wanted to treat them with the same care and respect in my illustrations as artists have done the same thing for, you know, say, Ted Williams or Babe Ruth again. I, I wanted to put them all on the same playing field. So, you know, like my, my drawings of a guy like Lehman Yokely, who played for the Baltimore Black Sox in the 1920s, there's not that many photographs of him when he, when he played baseball. So I wanted to portray him with the same style and quality as I did all the other players. Mm-hmm. Well, really, uh, that's just terrific because, just as you said, I've seen the same Satchel Page pose for 5,500 Satchel Page baseball cards. Right. Uh, and and you, that gives it a much greater variety, and it's much more fun to take a look at. Now, let's get to that Bush Leaguers. Um, Willie Mays, why was his team angry? Well, he Willie Mays uh, played in the Negro Leagues for two, two seasons when he was, I think, 17 and 18 years old. And in 1950, the spring of 1950, the old New York Giants uh, signed him to, to, to integrate the National League. So um, the New York Giants had a, a big farm system back then, and they didn't want to bring him right up to AAA at the time. They had a club in Jersey City. They, they didn't want to bring him up to Jersey City because they felt he was still too young. They wanted to see what he can do first before they moved him higher. So they went down their list of teams that they owned, and there was a double-A team in Sioux City, and that was out of the question because there was just a, a huge race riot there against American Indians. And so then they started going down the list, and all the rest of their teams were in the Deep South in leagues that weren't integrated yet. And they didn't want to send Willie Mays there because he was still pretty young and you know they they weren't sure how he would react to being the first black guy in a you know in an unintegrated league. So the only option the New York Giants had was to move him to Trenton, New Jersey, which had 
a low bottom in a barrel minor league team. It's as low as you can get in the in the minor leagues then. It's called the Trenton Giants. So Willie Mays goes and joins the Trenton Giants on the road. They're playing in Hagerstown, Maryland. And Hagerstown was still segregated back then. This is spring of nineteen fifty. So Willie Mays goes to the ballpark and the game was just finishing up, so the team comes into the locker room and he gets introduced to, to all his white teammates. And they get on the bus, and before they get to the team hotel, somebody takes them aside and says, Willie, you know, Hagerstown is segregated. You need to stay in a segregated hotel tonight. So, you know, Willie Mays already has two years of Negro League baseball under his belt. He stayed in segregated hotels. It's not that big of a deal, except when he stayed with his, he always stayed with his teammates. Now, this time, he's being separated from his team. He just joins his team, and all of a sudden, he's getting separated from him. So the bus drops him off in the colored part of town, and he gets a hotel room on the second floor. Meanwhile, the rest of the Trenton Giants, they're at their hotel, all the white players, and they're angry. You know, there's this, they're all really young players, and all of a sudden, there's a, there's a black guy thrown into their midst, and they're really upset. So a bunch of them take off and go into the black part of town and they go to Willie's hotel. Meanwhile, Willie's in his hotel room, he's unpacking, and he hears somebody out on the fire escape. It's a bunch of guys. It's his teammates from the Trenton Giants, and they're upset. They knock on his window. Willie opens the window. A bunch of guys climb in. They were mad because Willie Mays was part of their team, and they were making him stay in a segregated hotel. So a bunch of the Trenton Giants players went to his hotel room to sleep in his hotel room with them as a show of solidarity that he was part of the team now. Wow. Wow. What what a story. What a story, boy. And then there's Jackie Robinson. How how did he pave the way for desegregation? Well, he uh was the first not the first black player in in organized baseball, but he was the first one in the 20th century. And in 1946, the the illustration I show of Jackie Robinson. I'm from northern New Jersey, so it kind of means a lot to me that the first ball game he played in organized baseball he was playing for the triple a montreal royals and the first team the first uh the first game of the season the season opened up in jersey city new jersey so i depicted jack jackie robinson uh in on the field in jersey city with just i tried to think what what would be running through his mind as he walked out onto the field that day in 1946 and that that's what i tried to portray in my illustration of him mm-hmm. yeah now we come to Lefty Grove. Lefty Grove is a Baltimore Oriole. Now, you talk about synchronicity. Your, your publisher has been so generous with us. We've been supplying various people with a copy of this book that really need to read it. And Adam Jones has now got a copy. And I just can't wait to hear from him as to how, what he thinks of it. And and the, even one of the vice presidents of Baltimore Orioles, Lou Casaurus, his father, um, knew Lefty Grove and saw him play on 29th and Greenmount Avenue. That's where I lived for about the first eight years of my life, where Babe Ruth played, and and uh, and and now I find out that Lefty Grove pitched in there. I mean, this is just really exciting. Tell us about Lefty Grove because I never thought this guy. Well, I thought he was great, but I didn't think he was be sold for that kind of money. Yeah. See, I I. When I moved to Baltimore, I, I knew that the Orioles, the, you know, the modern Orioles had moved there in 1954. And 
and I knew that there was a bunch of Negro League teams that had played there. But I didn't realize how good the old Baltimore Orioles were. Now, the Baltimore Orioles used to be a triple-A team, and it was an independent team back then, meaning the owner of the team, Jack Dunn, owned it himself, and he wasn't beholden to another big league club. He didn't have to send his players away. So it was it's a sort of unique unique experience. So starting in 1919 up until 1925, the Baltimore Orioles won the International League pennant every year. I think it's the longest winning streak for an organized baseball team. It's just it's it's just unbelievable what a powerhouse this team was. And pretty much every guy that played on the roster during those years wound up making the major leagues at one time or another. So the Baltimore Orioles during that time in the early 1920s was essentially a major league baseball team. Now, Lefty Grove came from a mining town in in, uh, in Maryland, and he started playing for a, a real low-level uh, team, low-level minor, minor league team. And the Baltimore Orioles started sending their scouts out, and they heard stories about this, this left-hander that was just burning up this little league. So... Uh, Jack Dunn's son, the owner of the Orioles' son, goes out to this little town and uh, winds up watching this guy pitch and figures we, we have to have this guy you know, for our team. So for the price of a fence, because the, t- the team that, that Lefty Grove was playing for, they had just gone into the red because they made all these uh, repairs and, and upgrades to their ballpark. So they're, they're operating in the red zone. So what happened was the Orioles bought Lefty Grove for the price of paying for their outfield fence. Mm-hmm. And he wound up uh, going to Baltimore. This was in 19, 1920. And every year after, every year he played for the Orioles, he won at least 20 games. I mean, he and led the league in strikeouts, and he also led the league in walks a few times, but he was still young. And, uh, yeah, he played, he played up until 1925 for the Orioles. So it's about five years of minor league baseball where he probably could have been in the major leagues. Now, Grove won. Let me see. I'm trying to, trying to remember how many how many games. Uh, I'm pretty sure he won more than 300 games in the major leagues. Yes, he did. Yeah, yeah and, and then you, you add on all the games he could have won if he had been playing in the major leagues mm-hmm. at the time he was playing with the Orioles. It just makes this guy just even more phenomenal than he already is. So they sold him for a hundred over a hundred thousand dollars. Oh right, when uh, when he went up to the Philadelphia Athletics, um, Jack Dunn was still sore over having to get rid of Babe Ruth in 1914. So when he when the time finally came to let Lefty Grove go, he made sure that he that he uh, uh, he charged one hundred thousand six hundred dollars, which was six hundred thousand or six hundred dollars more than what the Red Sox got for Babe Ruth from the Yankees. Mm-hmm. That's, just, just, yeah. to kinda, just to kind of stick it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of guy Jack Dunn was. Yep. Uh, now, there are, there are other players we're not going to be able to touch on because we got to move to other sections. Great story on the conspiracy surrounding Roberto Clemente and Lou Gehrig and, uh, of course, Babe Ruth and Casey Stengel, etc. But we're going to move now to Chapter 3, Could Have Beens. And now, this, uh, this I love this one. This is a great section for me, as far as I'm concerned. Steve Dukowski and his relationship with the Baltimore Orioles. This this is really a, a, an extraordinary experience looking at Steve. Steve was a real hard, fast ball thrower. Some people said maybe he threw 110 miles an hour, maybe. Yeah, they, this is back. 
Dalkowski came up with the Baltimore Orioles, I, I think in 1958 was his first year after he got signed. And, I mean, this guy just had phenomenal velocity on his, on his fastball. And they didn't really have the, the kind of uh, speed cannons as they have nowadays to accurately gauge, gauge velocity and speed. But comparing him to other pitchers at the time, they usually say he was in the area of 110 miles an hour. I mean, this guy was just, just unbelievable. But his problem was he just couldn't find home plate. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and there's just, and you, you know, you couple that with, with 110 mile an hour heater. It's just, it's extremely dangerous. Like, uh, you know, you hear stories about this guy in the minor leagues. There's old players that are still around that, that played with him or played with somebody that had played with him. It's almost like a, like a Paul Bunyan character or something. You don't know if it's true or not, you know, and you, you kind of try to find out if this guy was real. But in this case, the more you find out about this guy, the, the stranger the stories become. You know, there's a there's a story that he threw so fast he tore off part of a man's ear. Yeah. You know, this other time he threw you know, threw a pitch, it went past the batter, past the catcher, past the umpire, and directly right through the the wooden backstop. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cal Ripken Sr., Cal Ripken Jr.'s father, was in the minor leagues at the time and was at that game and watched that happen. You know, so it's like all these stories are actually real, and you, you know, you're writing this stuff down, or you're reading it, and you're just that that can't be true. You know, there's there's, there's a there's another story where uh, how Dalkowski drilled this guy in the back. You know, that wasn't anything out of the or, ordinary. Out of the ordinary, he was always hitting players. You know, he just couldn't find home plate. Except the guy that he hit in this case was standing in line inside the stadium waiting for a hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as you know here, he held the Reno Aces to four hits, struck out 19, mm-hmm. but lost 8-3 to three due to nine walks. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I also love the way you tell the story about how he... Uh, they tried to straighten him out. The Baltimore Orioles really tried to straighten him out. They they put a great deal of effort in the, in getting him to control, but finally they just they just kind of gave up. Well, uh, what happened was he he played around in the minor league system, and they're kicking him from team to team, and he's just he's he's breaking strikeout records, and he's also breaking walk records, you know, and hit by pitch records. So he's breaking all the wrong records that you could possibly imagine. But he just this this fastball is just unhittable so the the Orioles are just bringing in teams of guys to work with this guy to to try to figure out what the heck is wrong with them well they're bouncing them around to all these teams and they finally send them to Elmira in New York and there's a young manager up there by the name of Earl Weaver and he starts working with Dalkowski comes up with all these makes him throw through a tire you know do all these things and he he figures out that Dalkowski he just can't comprehend throwing a curveball a screwball it would confuse him so Weaver decided to just have him throw, just just get it over to play, just throw fastball. That's mm-hmm. all you got to do. Yeah. So with his mind all clear, he starts winning games. And this is in the end of the '62 season, and he's 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 just he starts to put it all together. So the Orioles are just ecstatic. They go into spring training in '63, and if you read the newspaper articles from from the spring of '63, that's all the beat writers can talk about. It's this guy Dow Cow. He's just striking everybody out. He he makes the you know he makes the the Orioles roster starting opening day roster with you know no problem at all, and they fit him out for a couple of sets of uniforms. 
Topps baseball cards come down uh, comes down to spring training. They take pictures of them to put them on a rookie card. But by the time the sets of the uh, the packs of baseball cards hit the shelf, Dalkowski's gone. He never made an appearance in the major leagues because in the final exhibition game before the opening day game in Baltimore, he threw out his arm. Something yeah. popped inside of it. And yeah. That was it. Yeah, Never made an appearance in the major leagues. What a story. What a yeah. story. Hey, we got some other great stories coming, but we need a break here on 21st Century Radio. And with our guest, Gary C. Radkowski, the League of Outsider Baseball, an illustrated history of baseball's forgotten heroes, Touchstone 2015. Order it from the link on 21stCenturyRadio.com or from Gary's website, InfiniteCardSet.blogspot.com. Well, okay, our guest, of course, is Gary C. Radkowski. We're talking about the League of Outsider Baseball and Illustrated History of Baseball's Forgotten Heroes. You can also order it at any bookstore, any major bookstore, and it is doing great. I am so happy for you. You know, that this is extraordinary to me. It's just so, so extraordinary because I don't know if you remember it, but when we first got together, there were so many other people that, there, that were trying to help us with the Negro Baseball Leagues, but they all did exactly what we I asked them not to do, which was stop pestering them for autographs not and, 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 and give them something. Don't try to take something from it. You were one of the very few that paid any attention to that. Do you know that? Well, you know, when you introduced me to a lot of those guys, it wasn't at a card show or anything like that. It was at their own private reunions that these guys would have. It wasn't anything that was put together by a promoter or anything like that. And even if I wanted to, I would have felt bad, you know, asking those guys for something because they were just having a great time. And, you know, and to me, more important than an autograph or having them give me a piece of their career or something, I got to sit down and talk to these guys, you know, and listen to their stories and ask them questions. I mean, that's better than any type of little souvenir I could have asked for or taken from them. You know, so, so I guess I did get something out of it. It just wasn't something that they necessarily had to do anything to give me. Well, I'll tell you how they felt about it, because I had talked to them about it. You know, you were one of the few people that they would spend that amount of time talking to because they knew you appreciated what was what they were trying to talk about. And, and you paid attention. And, you, you know, those are very important because so many times... Even though especially, you know, there were a lot of people that wanted to help when they were in their 40s and 50s. But that's all they were concerned about was, can, he, can I have this guy's autograph? And as soon as they get their autograph, then he'd leave. And that would be it. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was very sad. So that's one of the reasons why I have such high, a high degree of re- regard for you. Because uh, you, put, you gave them longer life. You know that? You did. You gave them hope. Where everyone else was taking things from them, you were giving them something. And boy, that's the kind of karma uh, that uh, makes a, a very positive uh, takes a very makes a very positive thing in one's life. Well, let's forget all about that because we're back to back to Russ Van Atta, and then we're still talking about the could have could have been's. And I know I got to move quickly here. Why was his debut one of the most memorable in the history of the game of baseball? Well, Russ Van Atta came up with the. Uh, from the with the New York Yankees in 1933, and he was a promising guy in the minor leagues, and the, the Yankees finally brought him up, and he he uh, debuted in, in uh, against the Washington Senators. Now that that year, the Washington traditionally the Washington Senators always had miserable teams, but in 1933, 
the the Senators went on to win the pennant, and uh, so, so they actually had they had a great team that year, and that's who Russ Manata had a face in his first game in the major leagues, and uh, so he's he's on the mound, he's pitching a good game so far, and the Yankees had a, a guy that played center field by the name of Sam Chapman, and Sam Chapman's I gave him a little section in the book too because he was just a really interesting character. Most people remember him. Uh, if, if you've seen the Jackie Robinson movie, 42, he's the Philadelphia Phillies coach who's just spewing the most disgusting invectives at Jackie Robinson. You know, he was a real-life character. But in the early 1930s, he was a, a pretty good star, solid ball player. He played in a couple of all-star games. He, he, was, he hit over 300 lifetimes. So he, but he was also a really nasty dude. And... Uh, uh, he's um, he's running the bases in this game in Washington, and he winds up uh, spiking one of the Washington players uh, by the name of Buddy Meyer. And uh, Buddy Meyer was uh, half Jewish, and uh, Sam Chapman was, uh, among other things, he was supposedly anti-Semitic. So you know this was taken as a thing that he had done this on purpose, just because because uh, Buddy Meyer was Jewish. So a huge fight breaks out. Everybody runs out onto the field, and uh, Russ Manatta, you know, he's this rookie pitcher. He goes to run out of the dugout too, because all his teammates are running out on the field to fight. And the manager of the manager of the uh, the Yankees grabs him and makes him sit back down. And he goes back to the dugout, and he looks in there, and there's only two Yankees left sitting there. And one guy is Babe Ruth, and the other one's Lou Gehrig. <laughs> so he so he just watches this huge fight going on on the field. It's, they have to call out the police or the riot squad and everything. So they finally get everybody calm, calm down. The fans had overrun the field. They get the fans back into the stands. And Russ Manata has to go out there and pitch again. And he does magnificently. He pitches a shutout. And he goes on to have just a phenomenal rookie season in 1933. The Sporting News votes him as one of the best, uh, uh, the best uh, promising players of, of 1933. The other guys that got that got voted all went to the Hall of Fame. So I mean, he's in he's judged in good company now. So he goes home to New Jersey in the off season, and with his money from playing for the Yankees, he buys a house for his mom and his family. He had just gotten married, and uh, and his mom is living in this house that he bought. And a couple of days before Christmas, fire breaks out, and it burns his house down. And the family gets out okay. Everybody's standing around outside the fire department, trying to fight this fire. And Russ Manata, he's looking at everybody. His mom's there. His wife's there. Where's my dog? <laughs> it's his, his prized hunting dog. His, be, you know, his best friend in the whole world. It's still in the house. So Russ Manata runs into this burning house, and he's looking all over for his dog. He can't find his dog. And somehow he cuts his index finger on his left hand oh. and severs the nerves in the tendons in his index finger um, on broken glass or something like that. So he's, he's bleeding and he stumbles out of his burning house and there's his dog waiting faithfully for him outside. <laughs> so what had happened was he severed the nerves and the, the tendon in his finger and that was the hand and the particular finger that he used for a really devastating curveball, which is what baffled the American League hitters that season in 1933. Yeah. So he goes to spring training the next season, and he just does not have it. And that was the end of his career. He held on for a few more years. But 
that, that he got traded to St. Louis Browns, which is just like being sent to purgatory. Yeah, that was death. Yeah. yeah. But the one thing he got out of his major league career was he made one solid friend, and that friend happened to be Babe Ruth. Yeah. They became best friends. And Babe Ruth used to come back home to Sussex County in New Jersey to visit Russ Van Atta because they both liked to go hunting and fishing and play golf. There was plenty of that where Russ Van Atta lived. So he was, he was always visiting you know, Van Atta in northern New Jersey. And uh, years later, Van Atta decides to run for office. He runs for sheriff. So Babe Ruth comes to campaign for him. He goes around to all the taverns and you know, all the nightclubs and all, all the gatherings of people, and he says, do you like me coming to Sussex County? Of course we do, babe. Of course we do. Everybody says, well, if you don't vote for Russ Van Atta, I'm never coming back here again. <laughs> So Van Atta just sweeps right to office. <laughs> That's great. Oh, I love stories about Babe Ruth. He's my favorite of all ball players. Yeah, me too. Yeah, he was really something. I just loved his relationship with children. Oh, my heavens. Uh, well, okay, Jimmy Liston. That's fa- fa- Jimmy Liston, another Baltimore Orioles player. Uh, what brought about the end of his career? Well, uh, first of all, I-, I learned about Jimmy Liston from your show, actually. You, you had him as a guest on there. And he wrote one. Uh, his, his grandson wrote one of the best books I had ever read on what it's like to be a minor league ball player in the 1920s. And uh, uh, Jimmy Keenan was the, the the grandson that wrote the book. Mm-hmm. But Jimmy Liston was a hometown guy from Baltimore. Um, in 1921, he just graduated high school, and he was a a pretty small guy. He was an infielder, second baseman, but he was fast and he was he was. Spirited, you know, he was one of these go-getter kids. Jimmy Liston winds up breaking his arm, and uh, which kept him from getting sent to the low minor league. So he, uh, he gets called up to the big Baltimore Orioles, which turns out to be uh, a great break for him because it's a pennant winner. A couple of weeks after he's playing regularly, he, he gets hit by a mud ball, which is thrown by a, an opposing pitcher. And he, his arm hurts. He can't figure out what's wrong with it. So he plays for about three weeks before he goes to the doctor. It turns out he has a broken arm. He's been playing yeah. three weeks with a broken arm, Jeez, and it essentially okay. ended his career. You know, we come to the chapter, the race game, and you've got so many great ones here. Uh, Bullet Rogan, uh, God, John Henry Lloyd, my God. Babe Ruth called him one of the greatest ball players of all time. Layman Yoki, a biz Mackey, a catcher that one, it was one of the greatest. I believe he taught Rory Campanella. Yeah, and Josh Gibson, Oscar Charleston, uh, and I love his KKK experience. And then there is the man that literally changed my life a good deal. Uh, his name is Leon Day, who made the Hall of Fame in 1995. You called him the most complete black ball player. Tell us about this guy. Yeah, he, uh, you know, you introduced me to Leon Day years ago, and you know, I've been forever grateful for that. And when I was putting this book together, he was the first illustration that I did for this book. I, I knew he needed to be in there. He needed to be a full-page illustration. He was a he was a pitcher for the new the old Newark Eagles, and from around I think 1936 or 37 was his was his first season in the Negro National League. And he was unique because he would pitch from a stretch. He didn't have a, a big wind up or anything. He would just stand there and throw the ball from his shoulder, which which was different back then and now now pitchers do that all the time but back then that was, this was something unique and he was a small guy too he was a stocky little guy you know so he wasn't a, 
a giant six, over six foot guy like like Satchel Paige, you know, Leon Day was I think five five ten or something like that. So yeah, he wasn't a giant guy, but he just had a, a a great fastball and a great curveball, and until from about 1936 or 37 until he went into the army in 1944 his negro national league record was 45 wins against eight losses mm. in league mm. games which is just just unbelievable I mean, Sato page didn't even have a record like that yeah. and the thing that made leon D, leon day the most unique ball player was or uh, the most complete ball player was when he wasn't pitching now he was the ace of the newark eagles staff now when he wasn't pitching he was playing in the outfield. That's how good of a – he was also among the team's best hitters. That, that's how good he was. He was a fast base runner. You needed a, you needed a pinch runner, you sent Leon Day in there because he was going to steal a base or he was going to bring that run in. And, uh, you know, he's playing on the Newark Eagles, which you got guys like, like uh, uh, Biz Mackey, who's a Hall of Fame catcher. Then you had Monty Irvin, who's in the Hall of Fame and a New York Giants player. And Larry Dolby, who was the first the first uh, black player to integrate the American League, he's in the Hall of Fame. So these are his teammates. These are Hall of Fame batters. And Leon Day is also leading the Newark Eagles in hitting, as well as being their mm-hmm. their best their best uh, pitcher. So he was just a completely, uh, you know, a, a complete ball player. And then plus, if you talk to his old teammates, they also see he had the best singing voice in the Negro National League. Yeah, we sang with him on the radio once. <laughs> <laughs> the other players of Merry Christmas, I believe it was. He, he, and I like, I really appreciate what you had to say about the kindness of man. This man, the lack of ego, of his always building up other players. This is what really surprised me. Yeah, uh, I, you know, when when you had introduced me to him, I knew he played for the Newark Eagles, and I, I knew his name, but I, I didn't realize how great he was until I started. Uh, I went and I got the microfilm for the old uh, Baltimore Afro-American newspaper. And, uh, yeah, then you start learning about this guy. You're like, oh, my God, you know, this guy's like like Satchel Paige. And, uh, but when you talk to him, you really had to drag stories out of him because he didn't like to talk about himself. And, and this was a guy that actually really could sit there for hours and talk about himself if he had chosen so. But he didn't. He would just always tell stories about his teammates or the guys that he played against. He was just such a... a a gracious and kind man. Yes. And, uh, you know, he and I had a deal, basically, and that was, I was told in advance that he was going to get into the Hall of Fame. And when I went to him to tell him that, he said, Bob, 93 I was supposed to get in, 94 I was supposed to get in, and 95. I'll tell you what, Bob, when they make the announcement, you're going to be the person that's going to have to come to me and tell me whether I made it, and um, I really felt ter- <laughs> I felt terrible about it. But fortunately, it all worked out. Yeah. Except he died five days later, and that was just just terribly unfortunate. I also want to thank you. You know, you did something for me that nobody in my life has ever done. You put my name on a sign in the very back of the fee of of, of the card. Would you explain that, please? Yeah, in the background, you know, as a graphic designer, I love the old old graphics in a ballpark, the old advertising. So when I do my illustrations, I, I, I try to put the old advertising in the background because it's so colorful and interesting. So in the background of the Leon Day illustration, there's a, uh, there, there's a, a red wall, and if you look closely in the background, there's a big B-O-B for Bob. And then behind that wall, there's an old factory. And on the top, top of the factory, there's a sign, and it says Hieronymus. Yeah. 
boy. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, it was my well, pleasure. You know, well, it was really my pleasure. You, you know, it was just, uh, I'm so proud of you, and I've said that 14,000 times, mainly because you are totally unique. You really are. I want to thank you for joining us. This has been a really exciting time for me. I've been looking forward to this interview ever since I heard we were going to do it. And uh, we'll stay in touch with me, will you, brother? Sure will. Okay. Thank you, Gary Joseph C. Radkowski, the League of Outsider Baseball, an illustrated history of baseball's forgotten heroes, Touchstone Books, 2015. Order it from the link on the 21stCenturyRadio.com or from a major bookstore. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Cortner. I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus, and remember, shine your shoes and get a haircut.